1: this is the starship sofa everybody welcome hello and welcome to show 214 i am your host tony c smith Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. As you may be able to tell, he's fighting off the little struggles of man flu once again. Yes, once again, this came knocking at my door. But, you know, a fighter. A big soft fighter. I'll tell you what's coming up in today's show. We have fact article, it's our James Campanella with Science News for November. Then we have main fiction, which is just the fantastic James Morrow with a great, honestly, man, great story called *Raft of the Titanic. And it's this, the end of the month as well. We have the cover art by Jose Pardo, who is, honestly, check out Jose's work for James Morrow's story. I'll give you a little kind of heads up. Jose got in touch with us a while back, about. About, I don't know, about six months ago. And she says, Tony, you know, if, if you're looking for work or if you're looking for anyone who'd do art, you know, bells ring then, you know, I'm always kind of keen up. Oh, yes, yes. I popped over to Jose's site and just amazing. And then Jose says, you know, I I, I used to just mildly said, I used to work for Disney, you know. And he's like, eh, Disney artist want to work on Starship's over. So it was like, oh, yes. So we had a backwards and forwards chat and I sent, Jose, this story, this raft of the Titanic, which I just think is just a fantastic story. And what a an amazing honestly, listen to it, an amazing idea. It's just it's it's you know, it kinda some stories come along and just kind of knock you flat and you think, yes, wow, that's why that's why I like science fiction, that's why I do all that. I'll get on the story later on. But Jose came along like he says I used to work for kind of disney there you know just check out my York. i sent them this story over and came back with this picture and it's just like fantastic do you know what i mean there's just so much detail in it you look at it and you think oh it's it's a captain of a you know a, a kind of ship or a guy in charge of you know whatever part of the ship but then it's the detail around it that just makes this picture amazing that's nice. what i'm hoping to do as well is have a little chat on the sofa notes with jose as well just to kind of you know dig in a little a bit deeper as well so look out for that show coming soon because i'm sure jose will be up for that i got a little bio off jose he says he got his bfa from new jersey city university in illustration and design then he went on to work for a few small businesses in kind of ad agencies in the new jersey area he says he then moved down to Orlando, Florida, where he worked for Disney in their kind of merchandise art department. Now, we probably got some of his stuff, do you know what I mean? That it's actually done. I've got it probably stuck on a, a, one of these plastic mugs you get from them kind of places. So he says he was, he was doing that, you know, which was sold ex- exclusively in the theme parks. He says, he's, this is the kind of the gut-wrenching, but he says his Disney career was cut short by the Great Recession, but he's currently working for Scholastic Books Fairs as a designer and illustrator in the marketing department. And he also runs his small freelance illustration studio over at moonvisionstudio.com. Do pop over there, honestly, there's some great works there. It is just like, wow, this guy does the, the Disney stuff, do you know what I mean, when he sees some of his pictures. And it was, you know what was really nice? As well? <laughs> well, not really nice, kind of slap in the face, kind of reality check. I says to Jose, you know, because I've always wanted to do a kind of some sort of graphic novel, something like that. And I says, Jose, do you know what I mean? You, know, you might be the chap to help us out. And <laughs> Jose is kind of, and this is the real world kind of kicking in. Tony says it would be a lot of work. You know what I mean? You just, I assure you, when I even go there and find out the price, what kind of professional artists do. And it was just like, oh, <gasps> wow. Do you know what I mean? And it's all worked out. That's what that's what people charge. So the graphic novel is is put on hold for a little bit. (laughs) But hopefully, I'm going to get some. I get trying snaffle a few more pictures off Jose because they're just fantastic. You know what I mean? It's just that the depth you go into with a picture that I love as well. So Jose, thank you so much. So we have the November Science News by our good friends,
2: J.J. Campanella, Jim Squire. Greetings and felicitous solicitations, my excellent listeners. Welcome to this November 2011 Science News update. I'm your host for this evening of nummy nummy science, Jim Campanella. Let's get started. As I sit here wondering why exactly again, I insanely take up my precious time shooting the breeze with you kind folks... I'm reminded that the life of an academic is more than what most people think, and even more so for a research scientist. I have had colleagues who harangue me for, quote, wasting my time, unquote, on a science podcast for the masses when I could be writing journal articles or another grant proposal or just doing laboratory work, in short, doing something, quote, unquote, useful. That attitude reminds me of a story that was told to me years ago by one of my old academic mentors who passed away recently. His name was Dr. Ed Garber, and he was a polymath geneticist at the University of Chicago, where I did some of my undergraduate and graduate work. And he was a fascinating guy. He did genetics work on everything from plants to fungi to bacteria. He was also born and raised in Manhattan's Lower East Side of the 1920s, and that alone made him an amazingly colorful fellow. Among other stories he told were some hair-raising ones about his exploits during World War II serving as a bacteriologist in the Army's 1st Biological Warfare Division. Dr. Garber always reminded me a bit of Groucho Marx. Well, he looked a little bit like Groucho Marx, with the mustache of his older years on his TV show, You Bet Your Life, and he certainly had quite a dry sense of humor, a bit like Groucho as well. So what is his story to which I'm referring? dr garber said that back in the 1950s after he was first hired at the university of chicago his father visited campus from back east garber said that he proudly gave his working-class blue-collar dad a tour of campus for those of you who don't know the university of chicago campus has some of the most interesting architecture in the u.s academic system since it was modeled on cambridge's architecture in the uk even though it is not hundreds of years old like cambridge The neo-Gothic architecture is really something to behold, especially in the flat Illinois landscape. If you are curious, go Google Harper Library as an example. Anyway, Garber told me that the longer he walked about with his father, the less impressed his dad looked, which was not what the younger Garber had expected. He finally asked his dad what the problem was, and his dad told him he didn't think much of the academic life. His father, who had been a laborer all his life, demanded to know what the point of all this effete learning was. I am sure he did not use the word effete, by the way. One of the things Garber did say he said, though, was, You guys don't do anything practical or make anything. What's the point? Garber told me that he didn't have an immediate answer to that. He was a scientist, a teacher, and an academic, and was taken aback that anyone would say he didn't make anything. It was tantamount to saying that what you did was pointless and useless and why even bother to do it. As Garber and his father continued to stroll the quads, they passed a group of giggling undergraduate girls. Dr. Garber had an upside and finally defended himself by pointing to the students and telling his dad that they were the product that his work produced. Garber told his dad he didn't make cars or loaves of bread, but he did help to shape the products of the university, which were its students. Garber's father was not exactly convinced and told him, in short, that he was full of it, but I guess that Dr. Garber felt a little more justified. I've never forgotten that story. Nowadays, as big universities gather new patents yearly and are now even acting as incubators for things like biotech businesses started by faculty members, Garber's idea almost seems quaint and outdated. I suspect Garber Sr. would probably appreciate the modern university that has now arisen more than what he saw back in the 1950s, since they have now become more money-making operations Than actually do try to produce real products and provide real services. But I'm a bit more old-fashioned, and I agree with Garber. Our most important job was education and is still education. And frankly, I look at my little podcast segment as an extension of the education process. I certainly learn more about science doing research for it, and I hope that I educate you as well. I'm not so impudent as to believe that my podcast listeners are my product, In Garber's terminology, but I really hope that what I ramble on about has some kind of impact on your day-to-day life. Okay, well, uh, enough for the moment of that introspective mood. I suspect that the elder Garber would be even less impressed with me and my ramblings than he was with his son. I guess I'm in a kind of speculative mood today, sort of a meta-academic mood, to coin a phrase, because of an article that was published in the New York Times a couple of days ago by staff writer Christopher Drew. His specialty, according to his byline, is covering military technology. The title of the article was, quote, Why Science Majors Change Their Minds Because It Is So Darn Hard, unquote. In essence, the story was examining why the U.S., which used to be the world leader in science, has had a massive decline in students who are graduating with science, technology, engineering, and math degrees. According to Drew, studies have found that roughly 40% of students planning engineering and science majors end up switching to other subjects or failing to get any degree. That increases to as much as 60% when pre-medical students are included, according to new data from UCLA. That's twice the combined attrition rate of all other majors. One reason so many fewer younglings are graduating with science degrees, at least according to the article, is that they come to love science in grade school and high school when there is no rigor placed upon them. They are shown physics demonstrations in the gym or brought to the local science museum or the zoo or, quote, build erector sets and drop eggs into water to test the first law of motion, unquote, as the article says. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let the younger kids learn about how cool science is. They should. They need to. It's important. They need to appreciate it. The problem is that the real world of science does not just let you play around to discover things. When these kids come up against the wall of calculus, physics, and chemistry in their first year of college, they suddenly discover that perhaps the world of science is not for them, and they drop out or change majors. And as far as I am concerned, that is fine. That is what we call selection in biology. The academic process selects for individuals who are suited to getting through to graduation. I personally worry more about students who refuse to change majors, even though every piece of evidence suggests that perhaps they would be better off in a less technically demanding field. They hang on for dear life and insist that they will get that science degree no matter what. The worst of these are usually the pre-med students who are unutterably not suited to being physicians. They will take the same course over and over several times, often failing it but almost as often just withdrawing from it as they notice their grades getting worse during the semester. They are to be commended for not giving up, but at the same time, these desperate students have deluded themselves. I love this quote from the article. Quote, We're losing an alarming proportion of our nation's science talent once the students get to college, unquote, says Mitchell J. Chang, an education professor at UCLA. Does Dr. Chang ever consider that those students simply should not be science majors? Who says they are talented? If they cannot do the math or physics or chemistry, then maybe they should be in some other major. And just having the ability does not mean they are emotionally suited to science either. Just because a kid grows up loving CSI or Grey's Anatomy does not mean they should be a forensic scientist or doctor. At least in the U.S., we have brainwashed an entire generation of children into thinking they can be anything they want to be. Put simply, they cannot. You can only be what your actual abilities allow you to be. So why isn't the U.S. the technological powerhouse it once was? Well, one possible reason is that the U.S. is not worse. We are simply losing ground to the developing world. In short, we're not lousier. They are just getting better. Another reason... It used to be 40 or 50 years ago in the U.S. that math and science were difficult subjects, and the grades given out reflected that. No one came out of high school with undue beliefs that they could succeed in science if they had not already demonstrated that they could. An academic colleague of mine who graduated from the Dutch school system says that educators in the U.S. are too soft. They are not allowed to give out enough lower failing grades, and so you get lots of American kids entering college with the mistaken belief that science is a lot easier than it actually is. A third reason, the U.S. has had a brain drain in the last decade. It used to be that we plucked the best minds from China, India, Korea, or even Europe after the last World War. There used to be few opportunities in those countries to excel in science and be recognized to make a living. Now, many students come to the U.S. from Asia or Europe, get their doctorates, or do their postdoctoral work, and then they just head back home to academic jobs there. India has a whole slew of new universities opening up, or industrial jobs that didn't exist even a few years ago. A fourth reason, the U.S. government is no longer putting the kind of money into basic science research that it once did. There are fewer grants from NIH and NSF and the grants that are there are harder to obtain. Why go into a science field where you're going to have such a hard time doing your research, even if you're quite talented? A fifth reason. Forty years ago, students' attention was not pulled in a hundred different directions. Teachers did not need to compete for their attention with cell phones, iPods, laptops, game consoles, Netflix, Facebooks, Flickr, and Twitter, I know that students have always been good at frittering away precious time, and I was one, but now they can do it in the classroom while they're being lectured to. Someone pointed out to me that my reasoning is flawed because it is not just the U.S. that is plugged in. Many countries like South Korea or Japan are even more plugged into the net than we are. My answer to that is simply a shrug. I don't know. Perhaps it's a cultural thing. The U.S. has always been a place for those with an independent streak. Perhaps kids in other countries simply live in cultures where self-discipline is more respected. One of my former students, C.J. Erso, actually suggested a reason that Chinese may inherently be better in math than those who speak Western languages. He pointed me in the direction of a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers, The Story of Success. The book examines why certain people succeed while others do not. This is the same fellow, by the way, who wrote the bestseller Blink. No, not the Doctor Who episode. Anyway, in a chapter called Rice Patties and Math Tests, Gladwell points out that Chinese is a language which naturally conforms to numbers, while English does not. Quote, If you speak English, you have about a 50% chance of remembering a short list of numbers perfectly. If you're Chinese though you're almost certain to get it right every time. Why is that? Because as human beings we store digits in a memory loop that runs for about 2 seconds. We most easily memorize whatever we can say or read within that 2 second span. And Chinese speakers get that list of numbers 4853976 right almost every time because unlike English their language allows them to fit all those 7 numbers into 2 seconds. Unquote. Gladwell then references the mathematician Stanislas Haine, As Dehane explains, quote, Chinese number words are remarkably brief. Most of them can be uttered in less than one quarter of a second. For instance, four is si and seven ki. Their English equivalents, four and seven, are longer. Pronouncing them takes one third of a second. The memory gap between English and Chinese apparently is entirely due to this difference in length. In languages as diverse as Welsh, Arabic, Chinese, English, and Hebrew, there is a reproducible correlation between the time required to pronounce numbers in a given language and the memory span of its speakers. In this domain, the prize for efficacy goes to the Cantonese dialect of Chinese, whose brevity grants residents of Hong Kong a rocketing memory span of about 10 digits. Unquote. Dehane points out, This is even worse with numbers above 10, which are named very irregularly in English, 11, 12, etc. In China, Japan, and Korea, they have a logical counting system. 11 is 10-1, 12 10-2, 24 is 2 10s 4, and so on. The problem with English is that Asian children learn to count much faster than anyone who speaks English. A four-year-old Chinese child can count on average to 40. American children at that age can count only to 15, and most don't reach 40 until they're five. Him, not to brag or anything, but my three-year-old can count to 30, and my five-year-old to 100. But my kids aren't average. On average, by age five, American children are already a year behind their Asian counterparts in the most fundamental of math skills. Gladwell suggests that it only gets worse from there. Addition is a natural language process in Chinese because of the way the numbers are spoken. You can easily add three tens seven, which is 37, and two tens two, which is 22, because the necessary equation is right there. As Gladwell says, it's embedded in the sentence. No number translation like in English is necessary. The answer is five tens nine. It's the same with fractions. They just make more sense in Chinese. So it may be that we are naturally at a disadvantage here and may never catch up if we continue to depend on our English. This is not a good thing to contemplate. One final reason why the U.S. is falling behind in science is that science is no longer as lucrative from a financial standpoint as it once was. Here is one example. It used to be that the U.S. had most of the brightest minds in the country going to medical school. This was before the 1990s. You could be young and bright and work hard and eventually make a huge amount of money. And you can still do that if you can get through the rigors of the process. But in the 1990s, things changed. Smart kids who would have gone to medical school at one time and who were motivated by the power and money started to go into business instead. And they realized that for a lot less work, they could make a ton of money. by the way, Many economists are now blaming those smart guys in the 1990s who went into the business world for the worldwide financial crisis that we now find ourselves in. Lucky us. It's still unclear whether that trend is still continuing. At my school, the College of Business is only second in the number of majors to biology majors, which suggests that they may be running neck and neck now. Well, I have no doubt that there are more reasons why the U.S. is losing out technologically to India and China now, but you wonder after a while whether it even matters. If other countries are doing well, well then good on them. Presumably they have worked hard to get to that point. People in the U.S. do not seem to be working so hard or are so worried about it as they once were. And I'm sure that the U.S. will do better when it needs to do better or when it is forced to do better. And if not, que sera, sera, as the old saying goes. At this point, you guys are either fast-forwarding or wondering whether I will ever get to a real science story. If you stuck with me through my little rant, yes. Here are a couple of more hard science stories. The first is an update on cell phone use and cancer. You may remember maybe a year back when I reported on studies that suggested that heavy use of cell phones may cause cancer. Well, actually, the study suggested any use of cell phones may cause cancer. Well, that possibility seems way less likely now than it did even a short time ago. Several different studies have been performed that suggest there is no greater chance of getting brain cancer by using cell phones. The first study is a large European one that examined adults' and cancer risks of cell phone usage. Dr. Patricia Frey of the Danish Cancer Society's Institute of Cancer Epidemiology was lead author of a study that was published last month in the British Medical Journal. To put it very simply, Frey's study examined 358,000 Danish cell phone users over the last 17 years. This is so far the largest study of its kind. She found that subscribers of 13 years or more faced the same cancer risk as non-subscribers. In other words, using the cell phone did not make them statistically more prone to any higher cancer levels. As if she couldn't leave well enough alone, by the way, Frey pointed out in the article that even though a majority of studies, by the way there are at least 10 studies now, show no link between cell phone use and cancer, one exception is a 2010 study that found a slight, statistically insignificant increase in risk in a rare form of brain cancer called glioma among cell phone users. So, even though she is saying that cell phones seem to be safe, Dr. Frey is insisting not to give up hope that they may be dangerous. There is still that small chance. And people say that I'm a pessimist. Anyway, the second study is from a Dr. Aydin from the swiss tropical and public health institute and entitled quote, mobile phone use and brain tumors in children and adolescents a multi-center case control study unquote. the paper was published last month in the journal of the national cancer institute this work was the first study specifically designed to address cell phone use among children and adolescents diagnosed with brain tumors They conducted an international case-control study of children and adolescents between the ages of 7 and 19 years in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland. Children who were diagnosed in 2004-2008 with brain tumors were identified with various clinics and registry records, along with controls, and were randomly selected from the general population. Cell phone use was estimated, based on face-to-face interviews, with a parent present, and from cell phone subscriber records that were made available. The results were consistent with virtually all the studies of adults exposed to radio frequency waves, and no convincing evidence was found that children who use cell phones are at a higher risk of developing a brain tumor than children who do not regularly use cell phones. There were no consistent exposure-response relationships for any of the metrics evaluated, whether by time since first cell phone use, cumulative duration of calls, cumulative number of calls, or the location of the brain tumor with respect to the ear, that is the side of the head, most often used during calls. As with the adult studies, negative data is always a problem. It's impossible to prove a non-effect. And all these results will be debated as to whether and at what level additional research funds should be spent in assessing health effects associated with non-ionizing radiation, especially in this time of limited resources, which I spoke of earlier. Ongoing research includes a large-scale study of rodents exposed to cell phone frequencies that is now being conducted by the National Toxicology Program. Another prospective study has been proposed that is recruiting 250,000 cell phone users in five European countries. And a case control study of 2,000 young people is being done who were diagnosed with brain tumors between the ages of 10 and 24 years and an equal number of control subjects. This is from 13 different countries. Okay, the last story of the night is directly from the latest Global Flu Watch, which is a report by the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. Researchers have come across a new nasty confluence of viral problems in Asia in the last few months. For those of you who have seen the movie Contagion, it's really not that bad yet, so calm down. The November issue of the Journal of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene reports finding an influenza-like illness in Cambodia, where individuals have become infected with a seasonal influenza and also, at the same time, a pandemic strain of influenza. This is a reminder of the ongoing risk of distinct flu viruses combining in human hosts to produce a more lethal strain. A pandemic strain, by the way, is a type of flu against which people have little or no natural immunity. While the infected individuals recovered and the two strains did not recombine into a new, nastier, and different virus, experts say co-infections in Southeast Asia deserve particularly close scrutiny given the ongoing transmission of the deadly avian influenza virus H5N1 and the circulation of the pandemic virus H1N1 that first emerged in 2009. This report comes as flu season gets underway in the United States and Europe, and while Cambodia and other tropical parts of Asia are reporting continued flu activity. The ASTMH reports That as of October 10, 2011, the World Health Organization has tallied 566 known human infections with H5N1 and 332 deaths for a fatality rate of over 60%. In Cambodia, 16 of 18 infected individuals have died, with the most recent case reported in August. Thus far, the virus has shown a very limited ability to pass from human to human. Almost all the infections have been traced to contact with sick poultry and other diseased birds. But in the scientific community, fears remain that under the right conditions, avian flu could acquire far greater human virulence through a commingling or reassortment if you want to call it that, with a human viral strain. Researchers are keenly interested in identifying any co-infections because, regardless of their immediate risk, there is an urgent need to learn more about the human role in the, quote, genetic reshuffling, unquote, that allows different influenza strains to interact and create a pandemic strain. For example, researchers probing the dual infections in New Zealand found that the H1N1 pandemic flu strain was co-inhabiting with a strain that was resistant to the antiviral Tamiflu. Such co-infections, they said, Quote, Raise the potential of a Tamiflu-resistant pandemic strain. Unquote. The worst-case scenario, says the report, is one in which a co-infection with avian flu and a human strain results in a highly lethal virus that easily jumps from person to person, such as in the movie Contagion. As the study on the Cambodian co-infection notes, the prevalence of H5N1 strain in poultry in many areas of Southeast Asia provides increased opportunity for human exposure and adaptation of a lethal virus suitable for sustained human transmission. Several pandemic flu strains, including the 2009 H1N1 outbreak, have displayed a mix of genetic material from human and animal influenza. To give you an example, uh, H1N1 virus isolated in Southern California in 2009 contained genetic elements from at least four different sources— including North American swine flu, uh, North American avian flu, human influenza viruses, and Eurasian swine influenza viruses. Similarly, the flu pandemics of 1957 and 1958 have both been traced to a reassortment between human and avian viruses. If director Steven Soderbergh is even close to being correct about the next big pandemic coming down the pike... It may be a very long winter coming up for flu sufferers. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, continue to use your cell phone warily, and stay away from sick chickens. Until next time, happy Thanksgiving to U.S. listeners, and this is Jim Campanella. Good night.
1: there you go, James. Thank you so much. Yes, don't you? Never mind writing papers for academics and everything. Just concentrate on the sofa. (laughs) So, next up is the main fiction, and it's by a fantastic writer, James Morrow. We've played a couple of stories by James Morrow. One was The Lady Witherspoon's Solution... And the last one was Bigfoot and the Buddha Vista. That's actually Larry narrated that one as well. And we had the Ben Wooten art cover for it as well. So this one is, like you see, it's just come along and just, I love it. It's just the the quirky ideas that he kind of just mixes into stories. And this one is, which is exactly one of those. You know, I'm not even going to spoil a story or anything like that. Just get absorbed in it. One thing we have as well, which is kind of worth mentioning, James Morrow is in Starship Sofa Stories Volume 3 with a fantastic John Wayne story, Martyrs of the Upshot Nothole. Just, you know, there you go, there's a good, there's a, there's what excuse do you need? It's just fantastic. You know what I mean? Again, a quirky idea with John, you know, having John Wayne as the kind of lead protagonist in a kind of science fiction story. It is amazing. This book, first, or this story, should I say, first came out in the Mammoth Book of Alternate Histories 2010, edited by Ian Watson and Ian Waits. It is narrated by Peter Seaton Clark. Pete, if you remember, was one of the speakers on my narrator's workshops. He's got his little own audio business over there in Germany, kind of voice work for all over the, over the world. You know, if you, if you need a kind of certain voice for a, a TV commercial or a, anything really, Pete's your man. I'll put a link on the Pete's site. Just, you know what I mean, again, it, everything fits together with this. The artwork, the story, and the narration. Pete's voice is just perfect for this. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
0: The Raft of the Titanic by James Morrow. 15th of April 1912. Latitude 40 degrees, 25 minutes north. Longitude 51 degrees, 18 minutes west. The sea is calm tonight. Where does that come from? Some Oxbridge Swats poem, I think. One of those cryptic things I had to read in tenth form. But the title hasn't stayed with me. neither has the scribbler's name. If you want a solid education in English letters, arrange to get born elsewhere than Walton on the Hill. The sea is calm tonight. I must ask our on-board litterateur, Mr. Futrell of Massachusetts. He'll know. We should have been picked up, what, fourteen hours ago? Certainly no more than sixteen. Our Marconi men, Phillips and Bride, assure me that Captain Rostron of the Carpathia acknowledged the Titanic CQD promptly, adding, We're coming as quickly as possible and expect to be there within four hours. Since the ship of dreams sailed into the Valley of Death sometime around 2.20 this morning, we have drifted perhaps fifteen miles to the southwest. Surely Rostran can infer our present position, so where the bloody hell is he? Now darkness is upon us once again, the mercury is falling. I scan the encircling horizon for the Carpathia's lights, but I see only a cold black sky sown with a million apathetic stars. In a minute I shall order Mr. Lightholler to launch the last of our distress rockets, even as I ask Reverend Bateman to send up his next emergency prayer. For better or worse, Captain Smith insisted on doing the honourable thing and going down with his ship. That is, he insisted on doing the honourable thing and shooting himself, thereby guaranteeing that his remains would go down with his ship. His gesture has left me en passant in command of the present contraption. I suppose I should be grateful. At long last I have a ship of my own, if you can call this jerry-built jury-rigged raft a ship. Have the other castaways accepted me as their guardian and keeper? I can't say for sure. Shortly after dawn tomorrow I shall address the entire company, clarifying that I am legally in charge and have a scheme for our deliverance, though that second assertion will require of the truth a certain elasticity, as a scheme for our deliverance has not yet visited my imagination.' I count it a bloody miracle that we got so many souls safely off the foundering liner. The Lord and all his angels were surely watching over us. So far we have accumulated only nineteen corpses. A dozen deaths during the transfer operation, shock, heart attacks, misadventure, and then another seven shortly after sunrise from hypothermia and exposure. Grim statistics, to be sure, but far better than the thousand or so fatalities that would have occurred had we not embraced Mr Andrew's audacious plan. Foremost among my immediate obligations is to start keeping a record of our tribulations, so here I sit, pen in one hand, electric torch in the other, by maintaining a sort of captain's log. I might actually start to feel like a captain, though at the moment I feel like plain old Henry Tingle Wilde, the scouser who never got out of Liverpool. The sea is calm tonight. 16th of April 1912, latitude 39 degrees 19 minutes north, longitude 51 degrees 40 minutes west. When I told the assembled company that by every known maritime code I am well and truly the supreme commander of this vessel, a strident voice rose in protest. Vasil Placharski, from Steerage, who called me a bourgeois lackey enthralled to that imperialistic monstrosity known as White Star Line. I'll have to keep an eye on Placharsky. I wonder how many other Bolsheviks the Titanic carried. But on the whole, my speech was well received. Hearing that I'd christened our raft the Ada after my late wife who died tragically two years ago, my audience responded with respectful silence. Then Father Biles piped up and said, so all could hear, Right now, that dear woman is looking down from heaven, exhorting us not to lose faith. My policy concerning the 19 bodies in the stern proved more controversial. A contingent of first-cabin survivors led by Colonel Astor insisted that we give them an immediate Christian burial at sea, whereupon my first officer explained to the aristocrats that the corpses may ultimately have their part to play in this drama. Mr Lightoller's prediction occasioned horrified gasps and indignant snorts, but nobody moved to push these frigid assets overboard. This afternoon I ordered a complete inventory, a good way to keep our company busy. Before floating away from the disaster site, we salvaged about a third of the buoyant containers Mr Latimer's stewards had tossed into the sea. Wine casks, beer barrels, cheese crates, bread boxes, footlockers, duffel bags, toilet kits. Had there been a moon on Sunday night, we might have recovered this jetsam in toto. Of course, had there been a moon, we might not have hit the iceberg in the first place. The tally is heartening. Assuming that frugality rules aboard the Ada, and it will, so help me God, she probably has enough food and water to sustain her population, all 2,187 of us, for at least ten days. We have two functioning compasses, three brass sextants, four thermometers, one barometer, one anemometer fishing tackle, sewing supplies, baling wire and twenty tarpaulins, not to mention the wood fueled Franklin stove Mr Lightholler managed to knock together from odd bits of metal. Yesterday's attempt to rig a sail was a fiasco, but this afternoon we had better luck, splicing together a gracefully curving thirty-foot mast from the banister of the grand staircase, then fitting it with the patchwork of velvet curtains, throw rugs, signal flaps, men's dinner jackets and ladies' skirts. My mind is clear, my strategy is certain, my course is set. We shall tack towards warmer waters, lest we lose more souls to the demonic cold. If I never see another ice floe or North Atlantic growler in my life, it will be too soon. 18th of April 1912 Latitude 37 degrees, 11 minutes north, Longitude 52 degrees, 11 minutes west. Whilst everything is still vivid in my mind, I must set down the story of how the Ada came into being, starting with the collision. I felt the tremor about 11.40pm, and by midnight Mr Lightoller was in my cabin, telling me that the berg had sliced through at least five adjacent watertight compartments, possibly six. To the best of his knowledge, the ship was in the last extremity, fated to go down at the head in a matter of hours. After assigning Mr Moody to the bridge, one might as well put a sixth officer in charge since the worst had already happened, Captain Smith sent word that the rest of us should gather post-haste in the chart-room. By the time I arrived at perhaps five minutes past midnight, Mr. Andrews, who designed the Titanic, was already seated at the table, along with Mr. Bell, the chief engineer, Mr. Hutchinson, the ship's carpenter, and Dr. O'Loughlin, our surgeon. Taking my place beside Mr. Murdoch, who had not yet reconciled himself to the fact that my last-minute posting as chief officer had bumped him down to first mate, I immediately apprehended that the ship was lost. So palpable was Captain Smith's anxiety. Even as we speak, Phillips and Bride are on the job in the wireless shack, trying to raise the Californian, which can't be more than an hour away, the old man said. I am sorry to report that her Marconi operator has evidently shut off his rig for the night. However, we have every reason to believe that Captain Rostron of the Carpathia will be here within four hours. If this were the tropics, we would simply put the entire company in life-belts, lower them over the side, and let them bob about waiting to be rescued. But this is the North Atlantic, and the water is twenty-eight degrees Fahrenheit. After a brief interval in that ghastly gaspacho, the average mortal will succumb to hypothermia, said Mr Murdoch, who liked to lord it over as scousers with fancy words such as succumb and "gaspacho." "'Am I correct, Dr O'Loughlin?' "'The castaway who remains motionless in the water "'risks dying immediately of cardiac arrest,' the surgeon replied, nodding. "'Alas, even the most robust athlete won't generate enough body heat "'to prevent his core temperature from plunging. "'Keep swimming and you might last twenty minutes, probably no more than thirty. "'Now I shall tell you the good news,' the old man said. "'Mr Andrews has a plan, bold but feasible. "'Listen closely.' Time is of the essence. The Titanic has, at best, 150 minutes to live. The solution to this crisis is not to fill the lifeboats to capacity and send them off in the hopes of encountering the Carpathia, for that would leave over a thousand people stranded on a sinking ship, Mr Andrews insisted. The solution, rather, is to keep every last soul out of the water until Captain Rostron arrives. Mr Andrews has stated the central truth of our predicament, Captain Smith said. On this terrible night our enemy is not the ocean depths, for owing to the life-belts no one, or almost no one, will drown. Nor is the local fauna our enemy, for sharks and rays rarely visit the middle of the North Atlantic in early spring. No, our enemy tonight is the temperature of the water, pure and simple, full stop. And how do you propose to obviate that implacable fact? Mr. Murdoch inquired. The next time he used the word obviate, I intended to sock him in the chops. We're going to build an immense platform, said Mr Andrews, unfurling a sheet of drafting paper on which he'd hastily sketched an object labelled Raft of the Titanic. He secured the blueprint with ashtrays and, leaning across the table, squeezed the chief engineer's knotted shoulder. I designed it in collaboration with the estimable Mr Bell. He flashed our carpenter an amiable wink, and the capable Mr Hutchinson. Instead of loading anyone into our fourteen standard thirty-foot lifeboats, We shall set aside one dozen, leave their tarps in place, and treat them as pontoons, Mr. Bell said. From an engineering perspective, this is a viable scheme, for each lifeboat is outfitted with copper buoyancy tanks. Mr. Andrews set his open palms atop the blueprint, his eyes dancing with a peculiar fusion of desperation and ecstasy. We shall deploy the twelve pontoons in a 3x4 grid, each linked to its neighbours via horizontal stanchions spliced together from available wood. Our masts are useless, mostly steel, but we're hauling tons of oak, teak, mahogany and spruce. With any luck, we can affix a 25-foot stanchion between the stern of pontoon A and the bow of pontoon B, Mr Hutchinson said. Another such bridge between the amidship's orlock of A and the amidship's orlock of E. Another between the stern of B and the bow of C, and so on. Next we'll cover the entire matrix with jettisoned lumber, securing the planks with nails and rope, Mr Bell said. The resulting raft will measure roughly 100 feet by 200, which, technically, allows each of our 2,000-plus souls almost 9 square feet, though in reality everyone will have to share accommodations with foodstuffs, water casks and survival gear, not to mention the dogs. As you've doubtless noticed, Mr Andrews said, at this moment the North Atlantic is smooth as glass, a circumstance that contributed to our predicament. No wave broke against the iceberg, so the lookout spotted the bloody thing too late. I'm proposing that we now turn this same placid sea to our advantage. My machine could never be assembled in high swells, but tonight we're working under conditions only slightly less ideal than those that obtained back at the Harland and Wolf shipyard. Captain Smith's moustache and beard parted company. A great gulping inhalation, whereupon he delivered what was surely the most momentous speech of his career. Step 1 is for Mr. Wilde and Mr. Lightoller to muster the deck crew and have them launch all 14 standard lifeboats. Forget the collapsibles and the cutters. Each craft to be rowed by two able-bodied seamen, assisted where feasible by a quartermaster, bosun, lookout or master-at-arms. Through this operation we get our 12 pontoons in the water along with two roving assembly craft. The ABs will forthwith moor the pontoons to the Titanic's hull using daffod ropes keeping the lines in place until the raft is finished or the ship sinks, whichever comes first. Understood? I nodded in assent, as did Mr. Lightoller, even though I'd never heard a more demented idea in my life. Next, the old man waved a scrap of paper at Mr. Murdoch, the over-educated genius whose navigational brilliance had torn a three-hundred-foot gash in our hull. A list from Purser McElroy identifying twenty carpenters, joiners, fitters, bricklayers and blacksmiths. Nine from the second cabin decks, eleven from steerage, Captain Smith explained. Your job is to muster these skilled workers on the boat deck, each man equipped with a mallet and nails from either his own baggage or Mr Hutchinson's shop. For those who don't speak English, get Father Montvea and Father Perushitz to act as interpreters. Lower the workers to the construction site using the electric cranes. Mr. Andrews and Mr. Hutchinson will be building the machine on the leeward side. The old man rose, and shuffling to the far end of the table, rested an avuncular hand on his third officer's epaulette. Mr. Pittman, I am charging you with provisioning the raft. You will work with Mr. Latimer in organising his three hundred stewards into a special detail. Have them scow the ship for every commodity a man might need were he to find himself stranded in the middle of the North Atlantic. Water? Water? Wine, beer, cheese, meat, bread, coal, tools, sextants, compasses, small arms. The stewards will load these items into buoyant coffers, setting them afloat near the construction site for later retrieval. Captain Smith continued to circumnavigate the table, pausing to clasp the shoulders of his fourth and fifth officers. Mr Boxall and Mr Lowe, you will organise two teams of second cabin volunteers— supplying each man with an appropriate wrecking or cutting implement. There are at least 20 emergency fire axes mounted in the companionways. You should also grab all the saws and sledges from the shop, plus hatchets, knives and cleavers from the galleys. Team A, under Mr Boxall, will chop down every last column, pillar, post and beam for the stanchions, tossing them to the construction crew along with every bit of rope they can find, yards and yards of it, wire rope Manila hemp, clothesline, whatever you can steal from the winches, cranes, ladders, bells, laundry rooms and children's swings. Meanwhile, Team B, commanded by Mr Lowe, will lay hold of 20,000 square feet of planking for the platform of the raft. Towards this end, Mr Lowe's volunteers will pillage the promenade decks, dismantle the grand staircase, ravage the panels and gather together every last door, table and piano lid on board. Captain Smith resumed his circuit, stopping behind the chief engineer. Mr. Bell, your assignment is at once the simplest and most difficult. For as long as humanly possible, you will keep the steam flowing and the turbine spinning, so our crew and passengers will enjoy heat and electricity whilst assembling Mr. Andrew's ark. Any questions, gentlemen? We had dozens of questions, of course, such as, Have you taken leave of your senses, Captain? And, Why the bloody hell did you drive us through an ice field at twenty-two knots? And, What makes you imagine we can build this preposterous device in only two hours? But these mysteries were irrelevant to the present crisis, so we kept silent, fired off crisp salutes, and set about our duties. 19th of April, 1912. Latitude 36 degrees, 18 minutes north. Longitude 52 degrees, 48 minutes west. Still no sign of the Carpathia. But the mast holds true, the spar remains strong and the sail stays fat. Somehow, through no particular virtue of my own, I've managed to get us out of iceberg country. The mercury hovers a full five degrees above freezing. Yesterday Colonel Astor and Mr Guggenheim convinced Mr Andrews to relocate the Franklin stove from amidships to the forward section. Right now our first cabin castaways are toasty enough, though by this time tomorrow our coal supply will be exhausted. That said... I'm reasonably confident we'll see no more deaths from hypothermia, not even in steerage. Optimism prevails aboard the Ada, a cautious optimism to be sure, optimism guarded by Cerberus himself and a cherub with a flaming sword, but optimism all the same. I was right about Mr Futrell knowing the source of The Sea is Calm Tonight. It's from Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold. Futrell has the whole thing memorised – Lord, what a depressing poem. For the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy nor love nor light, nor certitude nor peace nor help for pain. Tomorrow I may issue an order banning public poetry recitations aboard the Ada. When the great ship Titanic went down, the world was neither various and beautiful, nor joyless and violent. But merely very busy. By forty minutes after midnight, against all odds, the twelve pontoons were in the water and lashed to the daffods. Mr. Boxall's second cabin volunteers forthwith delivered the first load of stanchions, even as Mr. Lowe's group supplied the initial batch of decking material. For the next eighty minutes, the frigid air rang with the din of pounding hammers, the clang of furious axes, the whine of frantic saws, and the squeal of ropes locking planks to pontoons the whole mad chorus interspersed with the rhythmic thumps of lumber being lowered to the construction team, the steady splash, splash, splash of provisions going into the sea and shouts affirming the logic of our labours. Stay out of the drink! Only the cold can kill us! 28 degrees! Carpathia's on the way! It was all very British, though occasionally the Americans pitched in, and the emigrants proved reasonably diligent as well. I must admit... I can't imagine any but the English-speaking races constructing and equipping the Ada so efficiently. Possibly the Germans, an admirable people, though I fear their warmongering Kaiser. By 2 a.m. Captain Smith had successfully shot himself. Three-fifths of the platform was nailed down, and the Titanic's bridge lay beneath 30 feet of icy water. The stricken liner listed horribly. Nearly forty degrees stern in the air, her triple screws glazed with ice, lying naked against the vault of heaven. For my command post, I'd selected the mesh of guy lines securing the dummy funnel, a vantage from which I now beheld a great mass of humanity jammed together on the boat deck aristocrats, second cabin passengers, emigrants, officers, engineers, trimmers, stokers, greasers, stewards. "'Stewardesses, musicians, barbers, chefs, cooks, bakers, waiters, and scullions, "'the majority dressed in life-belts and the warmest clothing they could find. "'Each frightened man, woman, and child held onto the rails and daffids for dear life. "'The sea spilled over the tilted gunnels and rushed across the canted boards. "'The raft!' I screamed from my lofty promontory. "'Hurry! Swim!' Soon the other officers, Murdoch, Lightoller, Pitman, Boxall, Lowe, Moody, took up the cry, The raft! Hurry! Swim! The raft! Hurry! Swim! The raft! Hurry! Swim! And so they swam for it, or rather they splashed, thrashed, pounded, wheeled, kicked and paddled for it. Even the hundreds who spoke no English understood what was required, Heaven be praised, within twelve minutes our entire company managed to migrate from the flooded deck of the Titanic to the sanctuary of Mr Andrew's machine. Our stalwart ABs pulled scores of women and children from the water, plus many elderly castaways, along with Colonel Astor's Airedale, Mr Harper's Pekingese, Mr Daniel's French Bulldog, and six other canines. I was the last to come aboard. Glancing around, I saw to my great distress that a dozen life-belted bodies were not moving, the majority doubtless heart-attack victims, though perhaps a few people had gotten crushed against the daffids or trampled underfoot. The survivors instinctively sorted themselves by station, with the emigrants gathering at the stern, the second cabin castaways settling amidships, and our first cabin passengers assuming their rightful places forward. After cutting the mooring lines, the A.B.s took up the lifeboat oars and began to stroke furiously. By the grace of Dame Fortune and the hand of divine providence, the Ada rode free of the wreck, so that when the great steamer finally snapped, breaking in two above the engine room, and began her vertical voyage to the bottom, we observed the whole appalling spectacle from a safe distance. 22nd of April 1912 Latitude thirty-three degrees, forty-two minutes north. Longitude fifty-three degrees, eleven minutes west. We've been at sea a full week now. No Carpathia on the horizon yet. No Californian. No Olympia. No Baltic. Our communal mood is grim but not despondent. Mr Hartley's little band helps. I've forbidden them to play hymns, airs, ballads or any other wistful tunes. It's waltzes and rags or nothing, I tell him. Thanks to Wallace Hartley's strings and Scott Joplin's syncopations, we may survive this ordeal. Although no one is hungry at the moment, I worry about our eventual nutritional needs. The supplies of beef, poultry and cheese hurled overboard by the stewards will soon be exhausted, and thus far our efforts to harvest the sea have come to nothing. The spectre of thirst likewise looms. True, we still have six wine casks in the first cabin section, plus four amidships and three in steerage, and we've also deployed scores of pots, pans, pails, kettles, wash tubs, and tierces all over the platform. But what if the rains come too late? Our sail is unwieldy, the wind contrary, the current fickle, and yet we're managing, slowly ever so slowly, to beat our way towards the thirtieth parallel. The climate has grown bearable, perhaps forty-five degrees by day, forty by night, but it's still too cold, especially for the children and the elderly. Mr. Lightoller's Franklin stove has proven a boon for those of us in the bow, and our second cabin passengers have managed to build and sustain a small fire amidships, but our emigrants enjoy no such comforts. They huddle miserably aft, warming each other as best they can. We must get farther south. My kingdom for a horse latitude. The meat in steerage has thawed, though it evidently remains fresh, an effect of the cold air and the omnipresent brine. I shall soon be obligated to issue a difficult order. Our choices are clear, I'll tell the aider's company. Fortitude or refinement? Nourishment or nicety? Survival or finesse? And in each instance I've opted for the former. Messrs Lightoller, Pittman, Boxall, Lowe and Moody share my sentiments. The only dissenter is Murdoch. My chief officer is useless to me. I would rather be sharing the bridge with our Bolshevik Plocharsky than that fusty Scotsman. In my opinion, an intraspecies diet need not automatically entail depravity. Ethical difficulties arise only when such cuisine is practised in bad faith. During my one and only visit to the Louvre, I became transfixed by Théodore Guericot's Saint de Naufrage, scene of a shipwreck, that gruesome panorama of life aboard the notorious raft by which the refugees from the stranded freighter Medusa sought to save themselves. As Monsieur Guericot so vividly reveals, the players in that disaster were, almost to a man, paragons of bad faith. They ignored their leaders with insouciance, betrayed their fellows with relish, and ate one another with alacrity. I am resolved that no such chaos will descend upon the Ada. We are not Orgiasts We are not beasts. We are not French. 4th of May 1912. Latitude 29 degrees, 55 minutes north. Longitude 54 degrees, 12 minutes west. At last, after 19 days afloat, the Ada has crossed the 30th parallel. We are underfed and dehydrated but in generally good spirits— Most of the raft's company has settled into a routine, passing their hours fishing, stargazing, card-playing, cataloguing provisions, bartering for beer and cigars, playing with the dogs, minding the children, teaching each other their native languages, repairing the hastily assembled platform, and siphoning seawater from the pontoons to stabilise the raft, not to drink, God knows. Each morning Dr O'Loughlin brings me a report. Our infirmary, the area directly above Pontoon K, is presently full. Five cases of chronic mal-de-mer, three of frostbite, two of flux, and four fevers of unknown origin. Because the Ada remains so difficult to navigate, even with our newly installed wheelhouse and rudder, it would be foolish to try tacking towards the North American mainland in hopes of hitting some hospitable Florida beach. We cannot risk getting caught in the Gulf Stream and dragged back north into frigid waters. Instead, we shall latch on to every southerly breeze that comes our way, eventually reaching the Lesser Antilles, or failing that, the coast of Brazil. As darkness settled over the North Atlantic, we came upon a great mass of flotsam and jetsam from an anonymous wreck, a poaching schooner most likely, looking for whales and seals, but instead running afoul of a storm. We have recovered no bodies. Life belts have never been popular amongst such scallywags, but we salvaged plenty of timber, some medical supplies, and a copy of the New York Post for April the 17th, stuffed securely into the pocket of a drifting Macintosh. At first light I shall peruse the paper, in hopes of learning how the outside world reacted to the loss of the Titanic. The dry wood is a godsend. Thanks to this resource I expect to encounter only a modicum of hostility whilst making my case next week for what might be called the... Medusa initiative, for avoiding famine. Only a degenerate savage would consume the raw flesh of his own kind, I'll tell our assembled company. Thanks to the Franklin stove and its ample supply of fuel, however, we can prepare our meals via broiling, roasting, braising, and other such civilized techniques. 5th of May 1912 latitude 28 degrees 10 minutes north longitude 54 degrees 40 minutes west I am still reeling from the New York Post's coverage of the April 15th tragedy Upon reaching the disaster site Captain Roston of the Carpathia and Captain Lord of the Californian scanned the whole area with great diligence finding no survivors or dead bodies merely a few deck chairs and other debris By the following morning They'd concluded that the mighty liner had gone down with all souls, and so they called off the search. The Ada's company greeted the news of their ostensible extinction with a broad spectrum of responses. Frustration was the principal emotion. I also witnessed despair, grief, bitterness, outrage, amusement, hysterical laughter, fatalistic resignation— and even, if I read correctly the countenances of certain first cabin and amidships voyagers, fascination with the possibility that should we in fact bump into one of the lesser Antilles, a man might simply slip away, start his life anew, and allow his family and friends to count him amongst those who died of exposure on day one. If the post-report may be believed, our would-be rescuers initially thought it odd that Captain Smith had neglected to order his passengers and crew into life-belts, Rostron and Lord speculated that once the Titanic's entire company realized their situation was hopeless, with the Grim Reaper making ready to trawl for their souls within a mere two hours, a tragic consensus had emerged. As Stanley Lord put it, I can hear the oath now ringing down the Titanic's companion ways. The time has come for us to embrace our wives, kiss our children, pet our dogs, praise the Almighty, break out the wine, and stop trying to defy a divine will far greater than our own. Thus have we become a raft of the living dead, crewed by phantoms and populated by shades. Mr. Foutrell thought immediately of Samuel Taylor Coleridge's The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. He muttered a stanza in which the cadaverous crew, their souls having been claimed by the skull-faced, dice-addicted master of a ghost ship, its hull suggestive of an immense ribcage, returned to life under the impetus of angelic spirits. They groaned, they stirred. They all uprose nor spake nor moved their eyes. It had been strange, even in a dream, to have seen those dead men rise. And when we all come marching home to Liverpool, Southampton, Queenstown, Belfast, Cherbourg, New York, Philadelphia, and Boston, that too will be awfully strange. Ninth of May, 1912. Latitude 27 degrees, 14 minutes north, longitude 55 degrees, 21 minutes west. This morning the good Lord sent us potable water, gallons of it, splashing into our cisterns like honey from heaven. If we cleave to our usual draconian rationing, we shall not have to take up the ancient mariner's despairing chant water, water, everywhere, nor any drop to drink, for at least two months. Surely we shall encounter more rain by then. Predictably enough, my directive concerning the steerage meet occasioned a lively conversation aboard the Ada. A dozen first-cabin voyagers were so scandalized that they began questioning my sanity, and for a brief but harrowing interval it looked as if I might have a mutiny on my hands. But in time more rational heads prevailed, as the pragmatic majority apprehended both the utilitarian and the sacramental dimensions of such a menu. Reverend Bateman, God bless him, volunteered to oversee the rite, the deboning, the roasting, the thanksgiving, the consecration, a procedure in which he was assisted by his Catholic confreres, Father Biles and Father Perushitz. Not one word was spoken during the consumption phase, but I sensed that everyone was happy not only to have finally received a substantive meal, but also to have set a difficult precedent and emerged from the experience spiritually unscathed. 14th of May 1912. Latitude twenty seven degrees forty one minutes north, longitude fifty four degrees twenty nine minutes west. Another wreck, another set of medical supplies, another trove of cooking fuel, plus two more legible newspapers. As it happened, the Philadelphia Bulletin for April the twenty second and the New York Times for April the twenty ninth carried stories about the dozens of religious services held earlier in the month all over America and the United Kingdom, honouring the Titanic's noble dead. I explained to our first cabin and second cabin passengers that I would allow each man to read about his funeral, but he must take care not to get the pages wet. Needless to say, our most illustrious voyagers were accorded lavish tributes. The managers of the Waldorf Astoria, St. Regis and Knickerbocker hotels in Manhattan observed a moment's silence for Colonel John Jacob Astor. Nothing was said about his scandalously pregnant child bride, the former Madeline Force. The rectors of St. Paul's Church in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, commissioned three Tiffany windows in memory of the dearly departed Widener family, George, Eleanor and Harry. Senator Guggenheim of Colorado graced the congressional record with a eulogy for his brother Benjamin, the mining and smelting tycoon. President Taft decreed an official day of prayer at the White House for his military advisor, Major Butt. For a full week, all the passenger trains running between Philadelphia and New York wore black bunting in honour of John Thayer, second vice-president of the Pennsylvania Railroad. During this same interval, the flags of all the White Star Line steamers departing Southampton flew at half-mast in memory of the company's president, J. Bruce Ismay, even as the directors of Macy's department store in Herald Square imported a Wurlitzer and arranged for the organist to play each day a different requiem for their late employer, Isidore Strauss. The Denver Women's Club successfully petitioned the City Council to declare a day of mourning for Margaret Brown, who done so much to improve the lot of uneducated women and destitute children throughout the state. On the whole, our spectral community took heart in their epitaphs, and I believe I know why. Now that our deaths have been duly marked and lamented, the bereaved back home can begin, however haltingly, to get on with the business of existence. Yes, throughout April the mourning families knew only raw grief. But in recent weeks they have surely entered upon wistful remembrance and the bittersweet rewards of daily life, wisely heeding our Lord's words from the Gospel Matthew, Let the dead bury their dead. 18th of June 1912, latitude 25 degrees, 31 minutes north, longitude 53 degrees, 33 minutes west. To reward our steerage passengers for accepting the Medusa initiative with such elan, I made no move to stop them when, shortly after sunrise, they killed and ate Mr. Ismay. I could see their point of view. By all accounts, from the moment we left Cherbourg, Ismay had kept pressing the captain for more steam so that we might arrive in New York on Tuesday night rather than Wednesday morning. Evidently, Ismay wanted to set a record, whereby the crossing time for the maiden voyage of the Titanic would beat that of her sister ship, the Olympic. Also, nobody really liked the man. I also went along with the strangling and devouring of Mr. Murdoch. There was nothing personal or vindictive in my decision. I would have acquiesced even if we didn't detest each other, had Murdoch not issued such a boneheaded command at 11.40pm on the night of April the 14th, we wouldn't be in this mess. Hard a starboard, he ordered. So far, so good. If he'd left it at that, we would have steamed past the iceberg with several feet to spare. But instead he added, Full astern! What the bloody hell was Murdoch trying to do? Back up the ship like a bloody motor car? All he accomplished was to severely compromise the rudder, and so the Colossus slit us like a hot knife cutting lard. When it came to Mr. Andrews, however, I drew the line. Yes, before the Titanic sailed, he should have protested the paucity of lifeboats, and yes, when designing her, he should have run the bulkheads clear to the brink, so that even in the event of rupture, the watertight compartments would not systematically feed one another with tonne after tonne of brine. But even in his wildest fancies, Mr. Andrews could not have imagined a 300-foot gash in his creation's hull. Let him amongst you, who has designed a more unsinkable ship than RMS Titanic, cast the first stone, I told the mob. Slowly, reluctantly, they backed away. Today I have made an eternal friend in Thomas Andrews. 5th of December, 1912. Latitude, 20 degrees, 16 minutes north. Longitude 52 degrees, 40 minutes west. Looking through my journal, I am chagrined to discover that the entries appear at such erratic intervals. What can I say? Writing does not come easily for me, and I am forever solving problems more pressing than keeping this tub's log up to date. Since getting below the Tropic of Cancer, we have endured one episode of becalming after another. Naturally, Mr. Futrell supplied me with an appropriate stanza from Coleridge— Down dropped the breeze. The sails dropped down. T'was sad as sad could be, and we did only speak to break silence of the sea. And yet we are much more than the poet's painted ship upon a painted ocean. The Ada abides. Life goes on. In August, young Mrs. Astor gave birth to her baby, faithfully attended by Dr. Alice Leader, the only female physician on board. Mother and child are both thriving. September's highlights included a spellbinding public recitation by Mr. Futrell of his latest thinking machine detective story, which he will commit to paper when we reach dry land. The plot is so devilishly clever that I dare not reveal any particulars. Last month, our resident theatre company staged a production of The Tempest, directed by Margaret Brown, and featuring our fetching movie serial actress Dorothy Gibson as Miranda. The shipwreck scene provoked unhappy memories, but otherwise we were enchanted. And, of course, each dawn brings a plethora of birthdays to celebrate. Mr Futrell informs me of the counterintuitive fact that out of any group of 23 persons, the chances are better than 50-50 that two will share a birthday. I couldn't follow his logic, but I'm not about to question it. On the romantic front, I have been pleased to observe that our young wireless operator Harold Bride has set his cap for a twenty-one-year-old Irish emigrant named Katie Mullen, though Mr Bride has not been pleased to observe me observing him. In June, Mr and Mrs Strauss marked their forty-first wedding anniversary. Mr Lightoller arranged a candlelit dinner for them above Pontoon F. In July, Mr Guggenheim and his mistress, Madame Leotine Aubert, finally got married, Rabbi Minkoff officiating. They passed their honeymoon in the gazebo above Pontoon D. Sad to say, last month Mr and Mrs Widener decided to get divorced, despite the protests of Father Biles and Father Monville. The Wideners insist their decision has nothing to do with the stress of the sinking and everything to do with their disagreements over women's suffrage. I personally don't understand why the gentler sex wishes to sully its sensibility with politics, but if ladies really want the vote, I say give it to them. 7th of July, 1913. Latitude, nine degrees nineteen minutes north, longitude, forty four degrees forty two minutes west. For reasons that defy my powers of analysis, a steady cheerfulness obtains aboard the Ada. Despite our isolation, or perhaps because of it, we have become quite attached to our crowded little hamlet. Notwithstanding the occasional doldrums, literal and figurative, our peripatetic tropical isle remains a remarkably congenial place. I am aided immeasurably by the incompetence of captains who have come before me. Thanks to the superfluity of wrecks and our skill in plundering the flotsam and jetsam, we are blessed with a continual supply of fresh meat, good ale, novel toys for the children, eau courante fashions for the first cabin women, lumber for new architectural projects, rigging to improve our manoeuvrability, firearms to discourage pirates, and lambskin sheaths to curb our population. Drop by the Ada on any given Saturday night and you will witness dance marathons, bridge tournaments, poker games, lotto contests, sing-alongs and amorous encounters of every variety, sometimes across class lines. We are a merry raft. Even our library is flourishing. This last circumstance has proved especially heartening to young Harry Widener, a resident bibliophile who needs bucking up after his parents' divorce. Jane Austen is continually in circulation, likewise Charles Dickens, Anthony Trollope, Conan Doyle, and an epic Polish novel at once, reverent and earthy, called Quo Vadis. We also have the Oxford Book of English First, compiled in 1900 by Arthur Quiller Couch, so now I need no longer turn to Mr Futrell when I wish to ornament my log with epigraphs. At least ten weeks have passed since anybody has asked when we're going to reach the Lesser Antilles, How might I account for this cavalier attitude to our rescue? I suspect that the phenomenon traces in part to the special editions of the New York Herald Tribune and the Manchester Guardian that we salvaged last May. In both cases, the theme of the issue was the Titanic catastrophe, one year later. Evidently, the outside world has managed to extract a profound moral lesson from the tragedy. Man, our beneficiaries have learned, is a flawed, fallible and naked creature. Our pride is nothing of which to be proud. For all our technological ingenuity, we are not gods or even demiurges. If a person wishes to be happy, he would do better planting his garden than polishing his gaskets, better cultivating his soul than multiplying his possessions. Given the ethos that now obtains throughout North America, Europe and the British Empire, how can we blithely go waltzing home? How dare we disillusion Western civilization by returning from the dead? I've consulted with representatives from steerage, amidships, and the aristocracy, and they've all ratified my conclusion. Showing up now would amount to saying, Sorry, friends and neighbours, but you've been living in a Russo esque fantasy, for the Titanic's resourceful company defeated nature after all. Once again, human cleverness has triumphed over cosmic indifference, so let's put aside all this sentimental talk of hubris and continue to fill the planet to bursting with our contrivances and toys. To be sure, we also have certain personal, you might even say selfish, reasons to keep the ADA as our address. Colonel Astor, Mr Widener and Mr Guggenheim note with great exasperation that according to our salvaged newspapers, the American Treasury Department intends to levy a severe tax on people at their level of income. Ironically, these revenues will be due each year on the day the Titanic went down. Reverend Bateman and Father Biles aver that their castaway flocks have proven a hundred times more attentive to the Christian message than were their congregations on dry land. At least half our married men, regardless of class, confess that they have grown weary of their wives back home and many have started courting the nubile Colleens from steerage. Surprisingly, many of our unescorted married women admit to analogous sentiments. Consider the case of Margaret Brown our Denver suffragette and rabble-rouser who avers that her marriage to J.J. J. Brown lost its magic many years ago, hence her proclivity for throwing herself at me in a most shocking and, I must say, exciting manner. And, of course, we continue to expand our material amenities. Last week we put in a squash court. This morning Mr. Andrews showed me his plans for a Turkish bath. Tomorrow, my officers and I shall consider whether to allocate our canvas reserves to a canopy for the emigrants, analogous to the protection enjoyed by our second cabin and forward residence. All in all, it would appear that, as captain of this community, I am obligated to defer our deliverance indefinitely. An attitude with which the vivacious Missus Brown heartily agrees. Eleventh of December, nineteen thirteen, latitude. 10 degrees, 17 minutes south, longitude 32 degrees, 52 minutes west. Looking back on Vasil Placharsky's attempt to foment a socialist revolution aboard the Ada, I would say that it was all for the best. Just as I suspected, the man is besotted with Trotsky. At first he confined his political activities to organising marches, rallies and strikes amongst the steerage passengers and former Titanic victualling staff his aim being to protest what he called the tyrannical regime of Sir Henry Wilde and his decadent courtiers. Alas, it wasn't long before Mr. Plocharsky and his followers broke into the arms locker and equipped themselves with pistols, whereupon they started advocating the violent overthrow of my regime. But for the intervention of our resident logicmeister Mr. Futrell, who can be as quick as his fictional thinking machine, Placharski's exhortations might have led to bloodshed. Instead, Futrell explained to the Trotskyites that, per Karl Marx's momentous revelation, the land of collectivist milk and classless honey is destined to rise only from the rubble of the Western imperialist democracies. The workers' paradise cannot be successfully organised within feudal societies, such as contemporary Russia or, for that matter, the good ship Ada. In due time, with scientific inevitability, the world's capitalist economies will yield to the iron imperatives of history, but for now, even the most ardent Bolshevik must practice forbearance. Mr. Placharsky listened attentively, spent the following day in a Brown study, and cancelled the revolution. To tell you the truth, I don't think his heart was in it. Of course, not all of Vasil Placharsky's partisans were happy with this turn of events, and one of them, a Southampton butcher named Charles Barrow, argued that we should forthwith institute a democracy aboard the Ada as an essential first step towards a socialist utopia. Initially, I resisted Mr. Barrow's argument, whereupon he introduced his cleaver into the conversation, and I assured him that I would not stand in the way of progress. And so a bright new day has dawned aboard the Ada. Mr. Andrews' astounding machine is now considerably more than a raft, and I am now considerably less than her captain. On October the 13th, by nearly unanimous vote, Mr. Placharski and Colonel Astor abstaining, we became the People's Republic of Adeland. Our constitutional convention, drawing representatives from the aristocracy, the second cabin precincts and steerage, dragged on for two weeks. George Widener, John Thayer and Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon were scandalised by the resulting document, mostly because it forbade the establishment of a state church, instituted a unitary parliament oblivious to class distinctions, and, owing to the tireless efforts of Margaret Brown and her sorority of suffragettes, enfranchised every adult female citizen. I keep trying to convince Widener, Thayer and Duff Gordon that certain concessions to modernity are better than the Bolshevik alternative. On November the 13th, I was elected the first Prime Minister of Aderland in a landslide, thereby vindicating the platform of my egalitarian party and giving pause to Father Perushet's Catholic Workers' Party, Sir Cosmo's Christian Entrepreneurs' Party, Thomas Andrew's Technotopia Party and Vasil Placharski's Communist Party. Two days after my triumph at the polls, I asked Maggie Brown to marry me. She'd done a splendid job as my campaign manager, attracting over 80% of the female vote to our cause, and I knew she would make an excellent wife as well. 17th of April 1914 Latitude 13 degrees, 15 minutes north Longitude 29 degrees, 11 minutes west The week began with an extraordinary stroke of luck. Shortly after noon, poking through the wreck of a frigate called the Ganymede, We happened upon a wireless set, plus a petrol engine to supply it with power. In short order, John Phillips and Harold Bride got the rig working. Once again, I have the ears of an angel, enthused beaming Phillips, and I can tell you all the gossip of a troubled and tumultuous world. Woodrow Wilson has been elected the 28th President of the United States, The Second Balkans War has ended with a peace treaty between Serbia and Turkey. Mahatma Gandhi, leader of the Indian Passive Resistance Movement, has been arrested. Pope Pius X has died, succeeded by Cardinal Della Chiesa as Pope Benedict XV. Ernest Shackleton is headed for the Antarctic. The feisty suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst languishes in prison after attempting to blow up Lloyd George. Nickelodeon audiences have fallen in love with a character called The Little Tramp. A great canal through the Isthmus of Panama is about to open. The second anniversary of the Titanic disaster occasioned sermons, speeches, editorials and religious observances throughout the Western world. Good Lord, has it been two years already! It seems only yesterday that I watched Mr. Andrews unfurl his blueprint in the chart-room. So much has happened since then. The launching of the ADA, the consumption of Ismay and Murdoch, the reports of our collective demise our decision to remain waterborne for the nonce, the birth of this republic, not to mention my marriage to the redoubtable Maggie. Adeland continues to ply the Atlantic in a loop, bounded on the north by the Tropic of Cancer and on the south by the Tropic of Capricorn. We last crossed the equator in late February. Mrs. Wilde marked the event by organising an elaborate masquerade ball, reminiscent of the fabled Brazilian Carnival. The affair was a huge success, and we shall probably do the same thing three months hence when we hit the line again. At least once a week we find ourselves within hailing distance of yet another pesky freighter, or presumptuous steamer. By paddling furiously and hoisting all sails, our spars now collectively carry 10,000 square feet, we always manage to outrun the intruder. In theory, thanks to our wireless rig, we have endured the last of these nerve-wracking chases, for Phillips and Bride can now sound the alarm well before we become objects of unwanted charity. 2nd of September 1914, latitude 25 degrees 48 minutes south, longitude 33 degrees 16 minutes west. Against the dictates of reason, in defiance of all decency, with contempt for every Christian virtue, the world has gone to war. According to our wireless intercepts, a western front stretches a staggering 475 miles across northern France. The Boche on one side, the Allies on the other. Both armies dug in and defending themselves with machine guns. In my mind's eye I see the intervening terrain, a no-man's land presided over by death, now on holiday from Coleridge's skeletal ship and reigning over a kingdom of muck, blood, bone, mustard gas and barbed wire whilst life and death combs her yellow locks, paints her ruby lips, and sports with the boys in the trenches. Between August the 4th and August the 29th, Phillips informs me 260,000 French soldiers died the most wretched, agonising and pointless deaths imaginable. I was under the impression that since the Titanic allegedly went down two years ago, self-delusion had lost favour in Europe, Mrs. Wilde remarked. How does one account for this madness? I can't explain it, I replied. But I would say we now have more reason than ever to remain aboard the Ada. Although the preponderance of the butchery is occurring thousands of miles to the northeast, the British and Germans have succeeded in creating a nautical war zone here in the tropics. Mr. Phillips has inferred that a swift and deadly armoured fleet, under the command of Admiral Craddock aboard HMS Good Hope, has been prowling these waters looking for two German cruisers, the Dresden, last seen off the Brazilian state of Pernambuco, and the Karlsruhe, recently spotted near Curaçao, one of the lesser Antilles. If he can't catch either of these big fish, Craddock will settle for one of the Q ships, merchant vessels retrofitted with cannons and pom-poms that the Germans have deployed in their efforts to destroy British commercial shipping around Cape Horn. In particular, Craddock hopes to sink the Cap Trafalgar, codename Hilfskreuzer B., and the Kronprinz Wilhelm, named for the Kaiser himself. We are monitoring the Marconi traffic around the clock, eavesdropping on Craddock's relentless patriotism. Two hours ago, Mr. Bride brought me a report indicating that the Kronprinz Wilhelm is being pursued by HMS Carmania, one of the British Q-ships that recently joined Craddock's cruiser squadron. Bride warns me that the coming fight could occur near our present location, about 200 miles south of the Brazilian island of Trindada not to be confused with the West Indies island of Trinidad. We would be well advised to sail far away from here, though in which direction God only knows. 14th of September 1914, latitude 22 degrees 15 minutes south, longitude 29 degrees 52 minutes west. A dizzyingly eventful day. Approaching Trinidad, we were abruptly caught up in the Great War bystanders to a furious engagement between the Carmania and the Kronprinz Wilhelm. There is blood on our decks tonight. Bullets and shells have shredded our sails. From our infirmary rise the moans and gasps of a hundred wounded German and British evacuees. I had never witnessed a battle before, and neither had any other Adeland citizens, except Major Butt and Colonel Weir, who'd seen action in the Philippines during the Spanish-American War. Dover Beach came instantly to mind. The darkling plain, the confused alarms, the ignorant armies clashing by night, or in this case by noon. For two full hours, the armed freighters pounded each other with their 4.1-inch guns, whilst their respective supply vessels, each combatant boasted a retinue of three colliers, maintained a wary distance, waiting to fish the dead and wounded from the sea. On board the Ada, the children cried in terror, the adults bemoaned the folly of it all, and the dogs ran in mad circles, trying to escape the terrible noise. With each passing minute, the gap separating the Carmania and the Prince Wilhelm narrowed, until the two freighters were only yards apart, their sailors lining the rails and exchanging rifle shots, a tactic curiously reminiscent of Napoleonic-era fighting, quite unlike the massed machine-gun fire now fashionable on the Western Front. At first I thought the Carmania had gotten the worst of it. Fires raged along her decks, her bridge lay flattened by artillery shells, her engines had ceased to function, and she'd started to lower away. But then I realised the Wilhelm was fatally injured, her hull listing severely, her crew launching lifeboats, her colliers drawing nearer the fray, looking for survivors. Evidently some shells had hit the Wilhelm below her waterline, rupturing several compartments. A North Atlantic iceberg could not have sealed her doom more emphatically. Owing to the relentless explosions, the proliferating fires, the rain of bullets and the general chaos, nearly three hundred sailors, perhaps three dozen from the Carmania, the rest from the Wilhelm, were now in the water, some dead, some wounded, most merely dazed. Fully half the castaways swam for the colliers and lifeboats of their respective nationalities, but the others took a profound and understandable interest in their Ada, and so it happened that our little republic suddenly found itself in need of an immigration policy. Unlike the Titanic, the Wilhelm did not break in two. She simply lurched crazily to port, then slowly but inexorably disappeared. Throughout the sinking I consulted with the leaders of Parliament, and we soon reached a decision that ten hours later I am still willing to call enlightened. We would rescue anyone, British or German, who could climb aboard on his own hook, provided he agreed to renounce his nationality, embrace the founding documents of Aderland, and forswear any notion of bringing the Great War to our waterborne, sovereign, neutral country. As it happened, every sailor to whom we proposed these terms gave his immediate assent, though doubtless many prospective citizens were simply telling us what they knew we wanted to hear. Being ill-equipped to deal with the severely maimed, we had to leave them to the colliers, even those unfortunates who desperately wanted to join us. I shall not soon forget the bobbing casualties of the Battle of Trindada. Even Major Butt and Colonel Weir had never seen such carnage. A boy, and they were all boys, with his lower jaw blasted away, another boy with both hands burned off, an English lad whose severed legs floated alongside him like jettisoned oars, a German sailor whose sprung intestines encircled his midriff like some grisly life preserver. The pen trembles in my hand. I can write no more. 1914. Latitude, 10 degrees, 35 minutes south. Longitude, 38 degrees, 11 minutes west. Every day, fair or foul, the Great War chews up and spits out another ten thousand mothers' sons, sometimes many more. Were the ages scores of able-bodied Englishmen, Irishmen, Welshmen and Scotsmen to sail home now and repatriate themselves, the majority would probably wind up in the trenches. The Beast Needs Feeding As for those hundreds of young men who boarded the Titanic— Intending to settle in New York or Boston, or perhaps even the Great Plains, they too are vulnerable, since it's doubtless only a matter of months before President Wilson consigns several million Yanks to the Western Front. And so it happens that a consensus concerning the present cataclysm has emerged amongst our population. I suspect we would have come to this view even without our experience of naval warfare. In any event, the Great War is not for us. We sincerely hope that the participating nations extract from the slaughter whatever their hearts desire, honour, glory, adventure, relief from ennui, but I think we'll sit this one out. Yesterday I held an emergency meeting with my capable Deputy Prime Minister, Mr Futrell, my level-headed Minister of State, Mr Andrews, and my astute Minister of War, Major Butt. After deciding that the South Atlantic is entirely the wrong place for us to be, we set a northwesterly course. Destination Central America. I can't imagine how we're going to get through the canal. Mrs. Wilde assures me we'll think of something. Lord, how I adore my wife! In January we're expecting our first child. This happy phenomenon I must confess caught us completely by surprise, as Mrs. Wilde is forty-six years old. Evidently our baby was meant to be. 15th of November, 1914. Latitude, 7 degrees, 10 minutes north. Longitude, 79 degrees, 15 minutes west. Mirabile dictu. We've done it. Thanks to Mrs. Astor's diamond tiara, Mrs. Guggenheim's ruby necklace, and a dozen other such gugores, we managed to bribe, barter, and wheedle our way from one side of the Isthmus of Panama to the other. Being a mere 110 feet side to side, the lock chambers barely accommodated our machine, but we nevertheless squeaked through. The Ada is heading south-southwest, bound for the Galapagos Islands and the rolling blue sea beyond. I haven't the remotest notion where we might end up. Luscious Tahiti, perhaps, or historic Pitcairn Island, or Pago Pago or Samoa, and right now I don't particularly care. What matters is that we are rid of both the Belle Epoque and the darkling plain. Bring on the South Pacific, typhoons and all. Night falls over the Gulf of Panama. By the gleam of my electric torch, I'm reading the Oxford Book of English Verse. Three stanzas by George Peel seem relevant to our situation. In the presence of Queen Elizabeth, an ancient warrior doffs his helmet, which, Now shall make a hive for bees. No longer able to fight, he proposes to serve Her Majesty in a different way. Goddess, allow this aged man his right to be your beadsman now. That was your knight. The poem is called Farewell to Arms, a sentiment to which we Battle of Trindada veterans respond with enthusiastic sympathy, though not for any reasons Mr. Peel would recognize. Farewell, ignorant armies. Auf Wiedersehen, dreadful Kronprinz Wilhelm. Adieu, fatuous good hope. Hail and farewell. I am a master of a wondrous raft, and soon I shall be a father as well. Over two thousand pilgrims are in my keeping, and at present every soul is safe. Strange stars glitter in a stranger sky. Colonel Astor's Airedale and Mr. Harper's Pekingese howl at the bright gibbous moon. The sea is calm tonight, and I am a very lucky man.
1: There you go, don't forget copyright is James Morrow. There's a link on the James's site, please do pop over there. Like I say, he's one of my kind of writers that just hits the buttons. Fantastic writer. So that is Starship Sova 214. I hope you enjoyed it. Do stick around for some more. And don't forget please, you know, support Starship Sova. This is her, her time at the moment there. Go over and get Starship Sova Stories volume 1, 2 or 3. <laughs> Until next week, just like to say good night from me. Ooh.
2: Can survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... A Sofa. sofa.
1: Evacuation Procedure Initiated. Shuttle set for launch. will be opened in 3... 2... 1...